Well, we can all agree that foundations are important. That a foundation is responsible for holding up everything else. For example, we all walked into this large room today and didn't, didn't give a second thought if it would collapse under our weight. Because of a strong foundation below us, the walls are straight, the supports remain strong, and the floor below us is solid. Foundations are important. What we build on will determine what we can build and how long what we build will last. Buildings need straight, solid, and strong foundations. And friends, what's true of physical buildings is no less true than anything else we try to build, like, for example, the church. The church, too, needs straight solid and strong foundations if it is to be built and if it is to last. So we wonder, what is the church built on? Certainly, you might think of many foundational truths that the church is built on. In our study through the book of Matthew, Jesus has been forming a new society. As king, he is ushering in a new kingdom, inviting people to give up their rebellion and submit to him as king. But he isn't building a kingdom like others in this world. It isn't built on a common ethnicity or geographical location or even a common philosophy of government. Jesus teaches that he is building his kingdom on people who confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this community, what he now calls the church, is given authority from heaven to welcome or dismiss other citizens based on their confession. Safford Baptist, the church is built by Christ on our common confession of Christ. And Jesus teaches us this in our sermon passage this morning, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, confessing Jesus. So, if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Matthew 16. If you're visiting with us, welcome. My name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders of Stafford Baptist. You'll be helped to to find a Bible and keep it open as we'll refer back to it often. You can find Matthew 16 on page 822 of the Black Pew Bibles provided for you there. If you don't have a Bible or you can think of someone you'd like to give one away to, you're welcome to to keep that one. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. We'll start this morning by reading the passage, and then I will lead us in a prayer for illumination. So please read with me Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our prayer of illumination this morning comes from the Middleburg Liturgy. Almighty God and our most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of life choke it but that as seed sown on good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Under the blood of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, friends, as always, it's helpful as we start to have the bottom line up front. So if you're taking notes or, or want a key line to remember as you leave today, it is this. To see and confess Jesus as the Christ and Son of God is the foundation of the church. Our main idea, to see and confess Jesus as the Christ and Son of, the, Son of God is the foundation of the church. Our passage this morning might be the climax of the first half of the gospel according to Matthew. Certainly it is a pivotal moment. This passage is the first time someone other than the narrator, Matthew himself, confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus, in response, not only affirms Peter's confession, but immediately announces that that confession is the foundation of the church. To see and confess Jesus as the Christ and Son of God is the foundation of the church. We'll have two points in our outline this morning. First, in verses 13 through 17, Jesus is the Christ. So we'll look at Peter's confession there. 13 through 17, Jesus is Christ. And second, Jesus' response in verses 18 through 20, built on our confession. So first, Jesus is the Christ. And second, built on our confession. As we study this brief passage this morning, my my hope is that we will all make this confession ourselves with Peter, and that together we will be built together into a church that makes this confession. So let's start in verse 13, and our first point, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Well, in, in our passage, in the context, Jesus has withdrawn from the Sadducees and Pharisees of chapter 16, verse 1. And crossing the lake, he has warned his disciples of their teaching of unbelief. So now he comes in verse 13 with his disciples into Caesarea Philippi. This is a Gentile city some 50 miles north of Jerusalem. But moving forward in the rest of 16 into 17, he's not going to interact much with the Gentiles. Really, his nearly exclusive focus in this next Next part, until he heads back to Galilee, is teaching and instructing his 12 disciples. Even his, his one exorcism in this next section is an opportunity to teach his disciples. And here he teaches his disciples about his identity and the nature of the church. I wonder if you can guess what, who the city, Caesarea Philippi, is named after. Caesar, that's right. 
The, the local governor had built this city and named it after himself, Philip, Philippi, and the Caesar. Well, he's in a city that, that obviously highlights the identity of its rulers. So Jesus asks his disciple about his identity. What are people saying about him? What's the rumor mill? And his disciples are quick to answer in verse 14. Apparently, there has been lots of talk about Jesus swirling as he performs a sign after sign. So first, in verse 14, some suggest that he is John the Baptist. John, we know from our study in Matthew, has played a a major role in Jesus' story. John is the one who announced his arrival, even baptizing Jesus. That that Jesus is, in fact, John raised to life is, is the same assessment that Herod came to, if you'll recall, back in Matthew 14. This is understandable. Their messages are are similar. John 2 calling for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's not the only suggestion. Moving on in verse 14, others say Elijah. Elijah 2. Elijah was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets performing great signs. For example, raising the dead, feeding the hungry. Sounds similar. And, and Jews expected Elijah to come again. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last part of the last prophet before years of silence before Jesus would come, says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4, 5. But we've already learned in the process in, in Matthew's gospel that John... The Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. Not literally Elijah, but one with a ministry like Elijah, living in the wilderness, wearing animal skins and, and leather belt, eating, eating uh, wild, wild animals, calling for repentance. So we have maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. Still others think Jesus might be Jeremiah there in verse 14. We have no similar prophecy that Jeremiah would return, but, but certainly Jesus is suffering like the prophet Jeremiah did. Or finally, if not Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. Well, clearly what we see here in verse 14 is that the jury is mu- very much out on who Jesus exactly is. And to be frank, isn't it similar in, in our day? 2,000 years later, and the the question still swirls around. There is always pervasive confusion about exactly who Jesus is. You might ask 10 of your friends and co-workers who they think Jesus is and get 10 very different answers. He is a a great teacher. He is a, a revolutionary. He's a legend. Frankly, there are many wrong answers but only one right answer. There is only one true Jesus. Well, Jesus is obviously not satisfied with any of the answers that they suggest, so he makes the question more personal. In verse 15, not just who do people say that I am, but who do you, who do you say that I am? You know, sometimes politicians, advertisers, even preachers can resort to hyperbole in order to capture their listeners' attention. 
You know, make everything excessively important or people won't listen. Well, I, I don't think I am guilty of hyperbole when I say this. Your answer to the question Jesus asks in verse 15, who do you say that he is, is the most important answer you will ever give. This is, in fact, exactly how we started our sermon series in Matthew, way back in 2019. What we've been driving at in our series all along. Pastor Paul, in in introducing us to the book of Matthew, said to us that question, who is Jesus, is the question that we must all answer. Certainly, your answers to other questions can be very important. Who you should marry, where you should live, what candidate to vote for, what advice from the doctors you should listen to. It's important to have the right answers to other questions. Is God triune? Is baptism by immersion? Is sexual immorality a grievous sin against God? But if you get the most important answer wrong, all the other right answers in the world cannot help you one bit. No question is more important than this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what others say about him. What do you say about him? And Jesus loves his disciples by asking them this question. It is good for us this morning to consider, whether for the first time or for the 10,000th, And it is loving for you to ask it to others. So try it in your evangelism with friends new or old to simply ask them, who do you say Jesus is? And listen. Well, what is the most important answer to this loving question? Peter, always quick to speak, answers on behalf of the group. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Peter, with the other apostles, have have now been following Jesus for for at least more than two years. He has seen all the signs his his own mother-in-law healed, tasted the, the water, made wine, walked on the waves, heard all the teaching, probing him with difficult questions. He has seen Jesus deal with others with compassion, with authority, with humility and tenderness. He has never seen Jesus do anything that violates God's righteous standard or fail to love others. So after witnessing all this, what has he determined through it all? You are a really good leader. You are a great wonder worker. You are a very holy man. No. Peter says, he confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To be clear here, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The name's Christ, Jesus Christ. No, Christ is a a title. It's the Greek word that means anointed. It's how Greek speakers would talk about the Jewish Messiah. Messiah also meaning anointed. So we wonder, well, why is that title so significant? Why does it show up more than 350 times in the New Testament, the, the writings of the apostles? Well, kings and priests were anointed with oil during their installation into office. 
As we read the Old Testament, you, you don't find the word anointed or Messiah all that much. But what you do find is lots and lots of promises of a future king, a, a son of David, who would reign forever in justice and righteousness. That's what we read earlier in our service from Isaiah 9, of the never-ending increase of the government of this coming king in justice and righteousness. Or we could look at Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah prophesies, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the one name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. We could cite dozens of other similar promises. The point, the people of God, based on the promises of God, were expecting a king, an anointed, a Messiah, to come and to reign. And his reign was always talked about in the most glorious ways. Now, even though the Jews hadn't put all the pieces together, they were expecting a Messiah, a Christ. And Peter, here in Matthew 16, 16, is saying that Jesus is finally, after hundreds and thousands of years of hope, is that one. To put more of the pieces together, he is the one promised to Eve to crush the head of the serpent and bring his people back into God's presence. He is the second Adam, a new head of humanity. He is the offspring of Abraham, bringing blessings to all nations. He is the Passover lamb whose blood shelters his people from the angel of death. He is the new prophet like Moses. He is the priest forever, better than the priests of Levi. He is the temple, the place of God's presence. He is the Davidic king, given an eternal reign, because he is God's son. He is the expected suffering servant. He is simply the Christ. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in this one. He is what what we have been hoping for, what has been anticipated by fallen mankind ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion in sin. The only and ultimate solution to our most fundamental problem, our sin. And remember, this is, this is the first time anyone has made this claim about this man, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel. Peter, on behalf of the apostles, is making a bold claim about Jesus, calling him the Christ. But that's not all he says. He also calls him the son of the living God. You might remember that the devil knew this about Jesus, calling him son of God when tempting him in the wilderness. But, but the disciples themselves have, have made this claim before. When Peter walked to Jesus on the water and, and Jesus rescued him and calmed the storm, all the disciples in the boat called out to him. Matthew fourteen thirty three. Truly, you are the son of God. 
But frankly, I'm not sure they understood all the implications of that claim. Each time they come to the same point with deeper levels of comprehension, yet not still fully understood. We know, though, to call Jesus the Son of God is to say that He is a, a member of our triune God. He, this Christ is not just man, but is worshipped and glorified along with the Father and the Spirit. He is not just descended from Eve, Abraham, and David. He is also God. And as God, He has all the divine attributes. Man, but omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. He is perfect in love, in holiness, and justice. He is eternal and unchanging, all because He is the Son of God. In particular, you might notice that he calls, Peter calls Jesus the Son of the living God. That description of God as living not only means that he is the true God, while all other gods are false and, and lifeless, but it also means that God is life. He is the living God. Now, this requires some, some big words. God the Father, the Son, and Spirit is self-existent. God is the only being who is not contingent on anything else. Everything else has life because God gave it. He has life in himself. He is the living God. And John chapter 5 verse 26 gets us into the deep end very quickly. John writes there, For as the Father has life and in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. For as the Father has life and in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. How can he have life in himself but also have it given by the Father? Welcome to the mystery of the eternal Trinity. Without beginning, he has life in himself granted by the Father. The point, saints, in Jesus is life. Eternal life, the, the only rescue from death that our sins deserve, is found only in the living God. All life comes from Him. Do you see why the answer to this question, who do you say the Son of Man is, is the most important answer you will ever give? From Him is the source of eternal life. When we say that Jesus is the Son of the living God, we get a lot of bang for our buck. Calling Him Christ and Son of the living God, the, these phrases mean far more than their word count might imply. And the question for us this morning is, do you believe this? Jesus could turn to each of us and, and ask us, who do you say the Son of Man is? Do you believe these two phrases confessed by Peter, Christ and Son of the living God, capture the identity of this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth that walked the earth and died on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago? Especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or, or maybe if, if you are, you might think that Christianity is a religion much like all the others, an, an option on the religious menu. 
I want you to notice the difference between the roles of Jesus and Peter here in this passage, especially as we compare them to other religions. You know, in in other religions, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad are the first confessors of the religion founded by each of them. But they themselves are not the content of their religion. Their religions could remain the same even if their names were forgotten. That is very different in Christianity. Jesus is not the first confessor of the religion named after him. We could say Peter is. Neither is Jesus the first and most important Christian. Allow me to quote a man named Herman Bovink. He writes of Jesus, He is not, in the usual sense of it, the founder of Christianity. But he is the Christ, the one who was sent by the Father and who founded his kingdom on earth and now extends and preserves it to the end of the age. Christ himself is Christianity. Without his name, person, and work, there is no such thing as Christianity. In one word, Christ is not the one who points the way to Christianity, but the way itself. What our brother Herman writes means that Jesus did not come to promote a philosophy distinct from himself. He came to be the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is not first and foremost a set of truths. It is a person who is truth. And that person willingly took on flesh and lived a perfect life of obedience to his heavenly father. This Christ then suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. The death that he died on the cross was for the sins of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ's death for them, confessing him as their Savior and Lord. All of us today are invited to know and confess him as he is. And if you this morning have eyes to to see him, a heart that confesses him as he truly is, well, it is the gift of God. Look how Jesus affirms Peter's confession there in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus affirms Peter in the strongest terms. The origin of Peter's assessment is none other than God the Father in heaven. So Jesus pronounces a blessing on Peter. This confession is evidence that he is blessed by God. I wonder how do you consider yourself blessed? This knowledge Evident in his confession of the Christ, this right confession of him is not the product of anything man has done, either Peter himself nor any other man. This knowledge, Jesus says, comes to him from the Father in heaven, the first person of the triune God. God the Father has revealed it to him. If you were with us last week, you will remember that you can see, like the Sadducees and Pharisees, all the signs that Jesus did and still not confess him as the Christ, the the Son of the living God. 
In fact, maybe like the Pharisees and Sadducees, you can see all the signs and call him the son of the devil. So how is it that some people come to one conclusion rather than the other? Are some more perceptive? Maybe some less evil than others. What does Jesus say? Not because of anything in your flesh and blood, but because the Father reveals it. Those who see Christ and confess Him for who He is, see because it has been revealed to them by the Father in heaven. Church, this is just another way of saying that salvation is a gift. There is nothing about you or I that made us deserve eternal life from Christ. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it or discover it because of your wisdom. It is purely a gift of grace revealed by heaven to you. Bestowed by the Father because of his great love. And the gift given in love is secure forever. But to know Christ as he is, is far more than just the gift of salvation, as if that were not enough. It is also to be made a part of Christ's kingdom. And here, in our passage for the first time, Jesus names his new community the church. So let's consider our second point in the next half of the passage, starting in verse 18, built on our confession. Our second point, built on our confession. What we have in these final verses is Jesus' teaching on the church. He teaches what the church is built on, who builds the church, how it will succeed, and the authority he gives to his church. It'll help if we start by defining that word church. It is the first time we see it show up in Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 16. What does it mean? Well, notice he doesn't use the word synagogue to describe his community, the, the normal Jewish term. You know, he could have picked a really gripping name for his community, but he chose church. No, church is not a building, though we often call it that, and it's not really even an institution. The word that Jesus picked to describe his community means assembly. In fact, you can go look in the book of Acts, it's used a few times for a big crowd. And to call something assembly requires two components, people and their assembling. You can't have a church without people. But it's not just people in general, it's, it's those that confess Jesus as the Christ, as we'll think more about. It is a community of people who submit themselves to Christ as king. So you need people, but neither can you have a church without those people getting together. You know, it's kind of like being on, on a, a football team, for example. You are a part of the team. You can wear that jersey wherever you go, but you're not really a part of the football team unless you get together with the rest of the team and do what football teams do. So you also are a part of the church everywhere you go, but to be part of the assembly requires you to assemble sometimes. And, and I want you to notice, saints, how connected confessing Christ is, from our first point, to the church here in our second point. Immediately after the first clear confession of Jesus' identity, what does he do? But start teaching about the church. 
This is the pattern for Christians. Those who confess Christ revealed by the Father in heaven is to be a part of the church. To be with Christ is to be with Christ's community. It is to love the things that he loves. And he loves his body, the church. So if you're not a member of a church, this or another one, let me encourage you to talk to a member of this church about why it is so important for them to be a member of a church. But friends, we have some confusion to clear up. My favorite study Bible introduces verse 18 with this inauspicious word. This is one of the most controversial and debated passages in all of Scripture. You know, I think most Protestants are more, well, know verse 18 more for what it doesn't mean than what it does mean. That Jesus is not calling Peter the first pope. You might know that verse 18 has been used by the Roman Catholic Church to teach that Peter himself, as the rock that Jesus builds the church on, means that he is the pope. But added on are all the doctrines of his infallibility and superiority to the other apostles. Well, that's simply not what the Bible teaches. We are a Protestant church. Peter is fallible. He will be rebuked by Peter in the next passage. And Paul, another apostle, later on in his ministry. In fact, the other apostles, apostles have authority over Peter to send him, for example, in Acts 8. Or require him to give an account to the Jerusalem church in Acts 11. And in fact, he disappears from the account almost entirely after Acts 16. Clearly, Peter is not the first pope above all the other apostles. But that's for what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? What of this language, on this rock, I will build my church? Well, let's start simple. Peter's name and the word for rock sound very similar, both in Aramaic and Greek. In Greek, it's Petros and Petra. He's saying, I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. So clearly, Jesus is doing some wordplay. And since Jesus is talking about building, we have to keep in mind how important rocks were for building. Since concrete foundations weren't available, if you wanted to build something, you had to find a place with good bedrock to build a house. Otherwise, you would fall. So, there is something about Peter that is like building on a rock, a strong and solid foundation. How is Peter like building on a rock? Well, whatever Jesus means, it has to be clearly related to what he said before. Why else would he be introducing it here? What did Peter just do that Jesus is responding to? Make a confession of Jesus, affirmed by Jesus himself. We have a confessor making the true confession of Jesus, now receiving the encouragement that he will be the foundation of the church. Jesus is saying that he will build his church on the foundation of people making a right confession of Jesus. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying that he will build his church on the foundation of people making a right confession of Jesus. You know, we can take a step back for a moment and consider what we already know from the rest of the Bible. If I were to ask you what the foundation of the Old Testament community was, 
how you got to be a part of it, what would your answer be? I might suggest that ordinarily it is being a child of Abraham. The the nation of Israel, the people of God, was built on physical descent from Abraham. But is that true of the new covenant community? To be a part of God's people now, you must be descended from Abraham? No. It does not depend on physical descent. The community in the new covenant are all those who have faith like Abraham. You are a part of this community, not based on your birth, but your new birth. Okay. The next question then, though, is how do we know who is a part of this community? Think about it. I could know if you are a part of the old covenant people by looking at your birth certificate, so to speak. But salvation in Christ is invisible. A work by the Spirit in the heart. You don't get a new birth certificate, do you? No. The way that we know that someone is a part of their church is by their confession of Christ. It is made visible through confession and in particular through public confession of faith in baptism. Let me just say, if you profess faith in Christ but have not made it public yet through baptism, let me encourage you to talk to one of the pastors here. Baptism is the first step of obedience all Christians are called to as they make their confession of Christ public. Well, to sum it up, Jesus is saying that he will build his church on the foundation of people making a right confession of Jesus. How do we know who is a part of this community? We have no new birth birth certificate. It must come by their confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. I also want you to notice, saints, that Jesus says here that he will build his church. This is one of the most comforting promises in Scripture. Certainly, he uses every member of his body to build it. But consider, even the gifts that we use to build up the body come from Christ. He is Lord of the church. The church has prevailed these 2,000 years despite intense persecution and schemes to destroy it. In fact, it is often said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That what might seem to end it, in fact, causes it to grow. And certainly, as we study church history and look to the future, the church goes through difficult seasons. As we sang earlier, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. But there is always light in the darkness. Our resurrected Lord of the church will live forever to build it. As he has promised, I will build my church. But to be honest, this promise doesn't mean that individual churches will never close their doors. Certainly, lands once filled with churches are now near empty. Like my home region of New England. But lands once empty are now growing full, like China. So to apply to us, this promise does not mean that Stafford Baptist will only ever grow. The Lord of the church might see fit to close our doors one day. But the promise is he will build his church no matter what. 
He says specifically that that it will survive even the onslaughts of the gates of hell. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The the gates were normally the most fortified part of defenses of a city. So the gates are a symbol of strength. And the word hell there is the Greek word Hades, the abode of the dead. So to put the phrase together, it means the church will survive even the, the power of death. It cannot die. The son of the living God will ensure it. So whatever happens, Christ will build his church on the foundation of people making a right confession of Jesus. But if Jesus here takes responsibility for building his church, he gives us a responsibility. A responsibility to wield the keys. That's what he says in verse 19. He says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, what do keys do? Open and shut doors. Recently, our church hired a new cleaning service. And the first thing that we had to do was give them a full set of keys. So they could access every room in the building. Our new cleaning company has, has our authorization to open and shut to do their work. I think that's something like what Jesus is doing to Peter here. He is giving Peter and those who make a like confession authorization to open and shut. But these keys are not keys to a church building, but he says to the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, Jesus is giving his disciples the authority to do what he just did. To hear a confession and make a pronounce it that affirms that confession. That's what the binding and loosing language of the rest of verse 19 refers to. To bind and loose is a rabbinic way of talking about what is permitted or excluded. The only other time that language shows up is in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. A discussion of what to do with people who confess Christ but refuse to repent of sin. Matthew 18, 17, and 18, he teaches this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you hear the same language? The phrase clearly has to do with our adding and removing people from the community of the church. This is how we know that what Jesus says in Matthew 16 to Peter applies to all of us. Because Matthew 18, he uses the plural. And because Paul applies this teaching to churches even without apostles like Peter. Frankly, friends, Jesus is not going to be here to do what he just did with Peter. He laid down the first example and we follow it. We don't make people Christians. We don't define the right confession. Rather, his church is to take up the keys and ask people, who do you say the Son of Man is? And people who make the right confession are welcome to be a part of his community, the church. Jonathan Lehman describes the keys this way. The authority of the keys is the authority to pronounce heaven's judgment on the what and who of the gospel. Confessions and confessors. More concretely, it is the authority to write and affirm statements of faith 
and to add or remove names in the church membership directory. So when you join this church, for example, you are asked to make a statement of your confession of Christ and his gospel before the entire membership of this church. And we listen to see if it is a true confession. You are also asked if you agree with our statement of faith, where we define, according to the Bible, Christ and his gospel. You know, verse 19 is one of those verses in the Bible that has no individual application. You can't go home and do this alone. Just like with baptism, it requires at least two people, one to confess and one other or or more to listen. We particularly do this at our members' meetings. So if you're a member of this church, I, I hope you have a renewed understanding of how important our members' meetings are. They're not extra extracurricular activities for those particularly interested in the administration of the church. Right? They're the primary time for us to wield the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's where we do our foundation work, if you will. And foundations as we have considered, are important. They're easy to forget about. But without them, nothing else will be held up. So, member of this church, you have an important role to play in building a strong and healthy church as you exercise the keys of the kingdom. Well, we have one last verse to deal with, and it is a great place to end. Jesus, in verse 20, strictly charges his disciples not to disclose this confession, that that he is the Christ. Is that surprising to you? It seems like it's the opposite of what they should do. Well, I think it's because there is so much misunderstanding about what that means, that he is the Christ. He still has so much more to disclose about his purpose, particularly his death. Lord willing, we will see this next week, how even Peter, who makes this confession, doesn't get it. But friends, we are on the other side of the cross. And on this side of the cross, Peter boldly proclaimed to all that Jesus is the Christ. So for us, Jesus fully disclosed, verse 20 might be the opposite. He strictly charges you and I to tell everyone that he is the Christ. Now that it is clear what it means. When you consider, who else will tell them? He has given this charge to tell of the Christ to this community, the church. We are the ones who together confess that Jesus is the Christ. It has been revealed to us by our Father in heaven. With the keys of the kingdom, we make the boundary between the church and the world clear so that the world can know who it is that represents Jesus, who knows that he is the Christ, so that we can be a bright city on a hill. This is the most important answer that we or any person can ever give. Who do you say the Son of Man is? He is what all people need more than anything else, the only and ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. Our sin. We as his community are built on our common confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he has given to us the task to open and shut the door, to welcome and dismiss other citizens based on this common confession. 
So we have the task, brothers and sisters, to, to go tell everyone of this rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all, that they might too enter in to this community, making this confession with us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we call ourselves blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to us, but you, our Father in heaven, have made known to us the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, we pray this morning we would make this confession with all the more boldness and joy that he is the yes and amen to all of your promises, that in him is life because he is the living God. Father, we pray that we would wield our responsibility as members of your church with sobriety and joy. Lord, that we would together build this church on our common confession of Christ. Lord, we would invite all to join with us to know Christ and enjoy him as he is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in a moment we'll have a chance to respond to God's word in worship through song. But I would invite you to spend the next moment in silent reflection considering what you have heard this morning. Considering particularly who Christ is to you, how you would answer that question. Please take a moment of silent reflection.